0: Well, good evening everyone. My name's Richard Perkins, and I'll be chairing this event this evening, um, which is the latest in a series of lectures and events um, called Sustainability in Practice, organised by the LSE Sustainability Team. And uh, it gives me huge pleasure tonight to welcome Professor Tim Jackson um, to talk to us. um, And he'll be talking about prosperity without growth. Um, Just to introduce matters and the nature of the event this evening, Uh, Tim will be talking for about 30 minutes, and after that time there'll be an opportunity for questions, open questions from the audience. um, And the event will wrap up around 7.45, so there'll be plenty of chances for you to ask questions afterwards. Um, I'll just say a few words about um, Professor Tim Jackson. Uh, He's he's currently Professor of Sustainable Development at the University of Surrey. And is the director of the newly awarded ESRC Research Centre Research Group on lifestyles, values and the environment. He's also an economics commissioner at the UK Sustainable Development Commission. And I have to admit, I did something very unsustainable. I printed out um, Tim's publication record for the past year or so, and he's very prolific, publishing in very, very high profile journals and really an agenda setting setter in the field. So thank you very much for for talking tonight. The topic of the talk will be prosperity without growth, and it accompanies this book here, uh, published by Earthscan. And there'll be an opportunity for you afterwards to buy signed copies of this book, uh, which Tim's kindly agreed to sign, outside here. So if you want uh, to purchase this book, uh, there'll be an opportunity for you to do so afterwards. So thank you very much, and I'll now hand over to Tim Jackson. Thank you.
1: Richard, thank you very much indeed. Um, uh, wow, it's a pleasure. It's fantastic to see so many people here on um, such an unpleasant uh, rainy evening off outside. And um, I suspect some of them may be just because it's raining outside and it's warm in here. But I, I'm sure I saw somebody asleep already and I haven't even started yet. Um, but, uh, but I'm hoping that I can keep you awake at least for an hour or so to talk about prosperity without growth. The provenance of, of the book actually was some work uh, that I led at the Sustainable Development Commission. Um, on exactly that issue, on that relationship of prosperity and sustainability uh, with economic growth. Um, And as some of you may know, that's quite a long-standing issue. It's nothing new, really. The idea that there might be limits to economic growth dates back at least to the debates in the 1970s, the limits to growth report from the Club of Rome, for example. And and in some ways, it's it's neither new or, or is it really very sophisticated, it's a very, very simple conundrum at the heart of prosperity without growth um, is so simple you can explain it to your children if you can persuade them long enough from the Wii and, and the internet to, to concentrate on it. Um, and it is this, that um, how can a continually, indeed exponentially expanding subsystem, let's call it the economy, uh, Continue indefinitely within the finite constraints of a bounded material system. Let's call it the planet So how can we have a continually growing system uh, of economic growth within the finite bounds of the planet? It's very very simple and, and, and the sense that the limits to growth report put on the table was actually somehow that system dynamics has contained within it the seeds of its own destruction. It might not matter when economic activity is fairly small and the planet is still big but at some point, surely, down the line, and it may be sooner rather than later, you're going to run up against the constraints, and when that happens, uh, then you're in trouble. So that very, very simple um, idea prompted you know, decades, really, of debate, and, and for a couple of decades the severity went away under the assumption that somehow we could get technology to fix it. Indeed the the 80s and the 90s particularly were full of technological optimism, of eco-modernization and the sense that we could evade these finite limits by the ingenuity of the human mind. And actually that faith in ingenuity remains an enduring feature. I can bear testament to that quite clearly from the debates I've had around this book. It remains an enduring feature of, of human optimism in relation to the challenge of economic growth, that we will fix it through technology. So I want you to hold on to that idea and I'll explore perhaps where the limits of it might exist and we can discuss in the questions um, again whether actually ingenuity technology is going to be our route out of this or whether we need to think in slightly more creative ways and you can probably guess that my answer is going to be that we need to think in more creative ways. But what I'd like to do first really is just sketch out um, the broad lines of the argument in Prosperity Without Growth. And it's really, I can boil it down to three pretty simple things. One is to explore something which I will call the dilemma of growth. Not a simple, straightforward thing at all, but a quite complex dilemma. And then critique our responses to that dilemma. The second thing, having established that our responses to that dilemma fall short, is to examine the underlying dynamics of this rather complex economic and social system and to suggest that we need to understand those dynamics if we want any chance at all of finding a positive change that will free us from the limits that we're looking at. And then finally, um, having understood the complexity of that dynamic and I have to admit to you that at that point it's quite a a salutary tale really. Uh, You sort of get to a point where you feel completely stuck and you think actually I might as well give up But the prosperity without growth principle message actually is that if you look carefully enough at that set of impossibility theorems that confront you when you understand the underlying structure, you find multiple avenues for exploration, multiple ways out of that impasse. But it's really important to define clearly what those ways are and to explore them thoroughly. So those are the three things. Dilemma of growth, system dynamics and the system dynamics of lock-in, and then our avenues for hope, if you like, in terms of escaping the dilemma. So here we are. Dilemma of growth is where I start. Um, It's pretty simple. I mean, this is a fantastic piece of evidence, actually, that came out, was published shortly after... uh, uh, certainly after I'd submitted the manuscript for the book, but it would have been great in Chapter 1. And what this is, is an exploration of uh, what is called the safe operating space for humanity. This is a systematic diagram, it's not to scale uh, specifically in relation to the Earth, but that green circle is supposed to represent what the authors of the study, and it was published in Nature, described as our planetary boundaries. So the green represents a safe operating space, and provided that we get our ecological indicators within that safe operating space then we're not doing too badly but the red and you can see where the red spreads out around the different ecological impacts the red represents those places where we are already in danger of exceeding planetary boundaries already outside our safe operating space and there's a couple of noteworthy things one of course is that Actually, climate change, which I'm sure uh, you know, everyone would have guessed would be on there somewhere, isn't the biggest of the problems. It's one of the problems. It's clear it's the one going up to the top there in case you can't read the text. It's clear that it does exceed the safe operating space. We all know that, uh, at least as, as long as we accept the climate science, and that's not a trivial question these days. Um, but what's perhaps even more interesting is that these other elements which are broadly... ...known about but barely acknowledged still in policy terms... ...that represent bigger transgressions of the planetary boundaries. So nutrification, for example, and nitrogen cycles... ...and indeed the biggest of all, biodiversity loss. This is, in case you didn't know it, the year of biodiversity. Biodiversity loss exceeds our safe operating space... ...by at least a factor of 10. So we're in a bad situation already in relation to exceeding planetary boundaries... ...and yet... Our model of progress is still one in which we foresee economic expansion and increasing impact on those limits. So that's, I mean, broadly to sum that up, what does that mean is it means growth is unsustainable. I mean, in broad terms, at least the kind of growth that we've got is simply unsustainable. Even the level of economic output we have at the moment is transgressing some planetary boundaries. So clearly you can question the limits, you can question the preciseness of the climate science, you can question how far we are, how close we are to these boundaries, you can do all that, as should be done in peer-reviewed science. But the broad thesis, actually, that growth in this form is unsustainable, is barely contestable, I would argue, in many, many different ways. Okay, let's get rid of growth. That seems the easiest thing to do. Let's... um, put something else into place let's call it as the French do uh, uh, degrowth or in the much more savoury French des croissants uh, certainly sounds like something you might want for breakfast um, but but actually before we go for something so radical um, perhaps we should ask ourselves whether in throwing out the idea of growth we're throwing out lots of other good things as well and one of the good things we might be throwing out of course is the possibilities for poorer nations to uh, come out of poverty, and there's a radical poverty that clearly needs a sophisticated response to it. So the idea of abandoning income growth in the developing countries doesn't stack up at all. And indeed, shouldn't we look at all the benefits that growth has given us over 50 years? Yes, we should. So let's just accept those two things, that growth has delivered some benefits in terms of quality of life and is absolutely essential in poorer nations. But let's ask the question, does that in itself justify ...continuing growth, continually increasing incomes in the already rich countries. And here is a place where it's useful to look at some data. I'll just show you some of it. Um, This is the relationship between income per capita and life expectancy. So life expectancy is on the vertical axis... ...and GDP per capita, income per capita is on the horizontal axis. And this graph is fascinating for all sorts of reasons. The first of which is it shows very clearly that in the poorest nations increasing income matters that you get very very big returns in terms of human flourishing in this case life expectancy uh, for any increase in income and actually you might ask well this is life expectancy there's lots of other things yes infant mortality um, uh, morbidity in the population participation in education even happiness and actually when you look at this data find very much the same pattern, that small increases in income really matter in the poorest nations. But the second interesting thing in this graph, of course, is that at the right-hand end of the graph, in the developed nations, where income per capita is highest, there seems to be a sort of diminishing return, that actually, in fact, some anomalies, that if you look at the United States, for example, and Ireland, and the UK, their life expectancy is lower than Cuba Costa Rica and Chile, uh, even though their income levels are six or seven times higher. So the question here is again, not to challenge the idea that growth, income growth is essential in the poorest nations, but to ask the question should we not, in the richest nations, be making room for the growth that will deliver flourishing outcomes in the poorest nations? What is the justification for continuing to grow? in the richest nations. What is it delivering us in terms of improved flourishing? Is it delivering us improved flourishing? Might it even be undermining some of what we would like uh, to attain in terms of the quality of life? Not the least of which, of course, is our ability to behave as moral beings in relation to our fellows who are much poorer, much worse off, and in dire need of income growth. So, the question there is not so much, um, you know, let's throw away growth. It is an argument about making room for growth in the poorest nations. But there's also a puzzle, there's still a puzzle here. Why is it that in the richest nations we are still pursuing growth? Why is it that enough is not enough? Why is it that in fact, uh, in spite of the environmental impacts, in spite of the fact that growth in some places are undermining the quality of our lives and our well-being? Why is it that we're still addicted to growth? And this is a really important question and the basic answer actually is the second horn of what I'm calling the dilemma of growth and it is this, the degrowth, décroissance, whichever you like to call it, is unstable. The system itself relies on growth for its stability and I want to lead you just very quickly through the dynamics, of the broad dynamics of that. You can be This is obviously a simplification, but you can be showing it very, very quickly. And it it exists in this very simple equation. Actually, it's not even an equation, it's an identity. GDP, the villain of the piece, the output, the economic output of the economy is equal to the number of people employed in the workforce times the productivity of that workforce. So labour times labour productivity, the amount they produce in each hour, each week, and each day and the fundamental dynamic of the capitalist economy is to pursue constant increases in labor productivity so labor productivity is going up and up and up so any suggestion that the output the economic output could be stabilized or even decreased tells you what that there is a continuing downward pressure on employment so that people will become unemployed as people become unemployed They are unable to contribute to the economy. They can't be out there buying stuff. They can't be out there buying stuff. Reduces the demand for people to produce it. Reduces the demand for workers to work in the factories that produce it. And so you get into, instead of the virtuous circle of growth, you get into a vicious cycle. And it's the fear, it's the visceral fear that sits at the heart of every politician in the face of any slowing down of the economy. And goes a long way, of course to explain why the almost ubiquitous response to the recession was to say, let's get out on the high street and keep shopping. Let's keep the economy going in the way that will maintain stability in the economy. So there it is, the dilemma of growth. It's not trivial. It isn't something for which we have easy solutions. Growth is unsustainable and we can clearly see the impacts of that, but degrowth is unstable, at least under current conditions. The default mechanism for stability is the increasing economy. So what you would ask yourselves, given that we are, um, and even policymakers, politicians are not unaware of this dilemma, what is our default response to the dilemma of growth? It's broadly captured in something um, that goes under the name decoupling or, or, or dematerialization somehow. And, and The basic idea of it is very simple to convey. The good thing is economic value, dollars. Let's assume that we can have dollars going up and up and up. Economic growth can continue, but let's suppose that we can dematerialize that growth. We can decouple the material impact of economic activity uh, from the dollar value of it. What would that mean? It would mean doing things more efficiently, essentially. And since we live in an economy, an economic structure that prizes efficiency, surely that's one of the things that you would like to believe could be easily delivered. And indeed, when you look at the evidence, you find that we can deliver efficiency improvement. If you look, for example, at the carbon intensity of every dollar of economic activity over the last 30 years, you discover that, in fact, it's declined by about a third. So, in other words, we've got more efficient in carbon terms uh, through the last few decades. And that has to be a good thing, of course. But this diagram, which I've left surreptitiously for you to absorb as I was speaking, is not the carbon efficiency, it's the total carbon uh, in the economy. The red line is carbon dioxide emissions, and uh, this is the global economy. The blue line is the world GDP, and the other lines are um, fossil resource consumption, also itself the object of some scrutiny. So, what does this graph tell us? It tells us that in spite of our efficiency improvements, in spite of the fact that we've done things better over the last two to three decades we've done more of them and in doing more of them scale has actually outweighed the efficiency improvements that we had put in place through our technological ingenuity so there we are Technology's worked in terms of efficiency improvement it's done the job but it hasn't done it fast enough it just hasn't managed to outrun scale uh, in anything like the degree to which we would need it to so, and um, just note of course that 1990 is the Kyoto base year and that red line is 40% higher by the end of the period than it was at the beginning. And that's not quite what the Kyoto Protocol had in mind, believe it or not. <laughs> so we didn't achieve it is the message of this graph. And you can look at other data, you can look at data on resource consumption, on land use, on, on water extraction, you can look at data on deforestation, on biodiversity loss, and very, very similar things emerge. that we have not achieve decoupling. We have not escaped from the dilemma of growth. So admittedly, we didn't try maybe hard enough, so suppose we tried harder, how hard would we need to try? And here is a little scenario exercise that tries to tease out this question. How hard would we need to try, for example, to meet our carbon targets? On the left-hand side of this graph, it is where we are at the moment, 768 grams of carbon per dollar of economic activity, the average carbon intensity of the economy in 2007, just before the crash. Um, Let's suppose, (coughs) just a little scenario exercise, that we want economic growth. That's the basis of our continuation of this particular economic model. Let's suppose we also care about carbon limits, so we want to get under the carbon bar, we want to achieve carbon reduction. Uh, in line with the IPCC recommendations. And let's suppose also that we believe that by 2050, a world of 9 billion people, which is the mid-range expectation, has a right, each one and every one of them, to something like a Western lifestyle, with 2%, 3% growth included in it. The question is, how far would we have to reduce the carbon intensity of economic activity to achieve it? And the answer, I would destroy dramatic intent entirely if this wasn't the case, is, of course, over here, 6 grams of carbon per dollar of economic activity, 130-fold improvement, and an order of magnitude faster over a very short timescale than anything we have ever achieved historically. In other words, the technological demand here is massive, it's huge. And then, of course, the economy is still growing in the conventional model, so that by the end of the century, what do you need? Actually, on some scenarios, you need the CO2 per dollar, the carbon intensity of the economy, to be less than zero. What does less than zero, what does that mean? What does that negative number mean? It means that on average, every dollar of economic activity, instead of pumping carbon relentlessly into the atmosphere, is actually pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. We have no idea what such an economy looks like. We have no idea what its technologies are. We have no idea how it's organized. We have no idea what life is like an economy that's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and yet that is the logical conclusion of a chain of argument that says we we (coughs) pride equity, the ability of every person on the planet to aspire to the same level of quality of life, we pride economic growth and we pride sustainability So that's a very very simple conclusion that we are, are facing an enormous challenge in relation to technology if we believe that technology can fix it possibly, one might almost say, a sense of kind of magical thinking. Nothing that really has a basis either in the historical evidence or indeed in the prospects for the organization of society in the future. Not absolutely impossible, I guarantee that. I I admit that. You can't guarantee that this, um, this kind of transformation couldn't take place, but it is hugely demanding. And the first thing you'd want to know, if you pinned your hopes on that, would be, is this system capable of delivering that degree of technological innovation? So let's address that question. This is really part two, if you like, of Prosperity Without Growth, is understanding the system dynamic. What can we understand about the way that the economy works? Um, Start with a blank sheet. Um, Very, very quick, Economics 101. Firms produce goods for people, that's us, households, and they also provide us with incomes, and those incomes are good because we can spend them on goods and services produced by firms. It's called the circular flow of the economy, it's very elegant, it works very well, it doesn't at the moment tell you anything about growth, that could just be a constant flow, at least uh, as for a constant population, although, of course, we have population increase as well, but nothing at the moment that drives us forward specifically. But the dynamics of the system do have a driver, and I just want to tease apart two different drivers. One of them, a key element here is the role of investment. Investment is essential, of course, to maintain our productive assets. But in the capitalist economy, as I've already suggested, one of the targets of investment is increased productivity and largely that's the pursuit of labor productivity. That in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, economists would argue it's a very good thing because it brings the prices down. But of course, as prices come down, economic laws being as they are, we tend to buy more of those things. So already, actually, this process begins to pull uh, more demand through the system. And perhaps even more importantly, Investment is used, as Joseph Schumpeter pointed out, in a process of creative destruction, the continual throwing over of old processes and old technologies and the production of the new, the production of novelty, the relentless production of novelty. And of course, we're very aware of that as consumers. We see it all around us every day, uh, new gadgets, new technologies, new processes, new consumer services, and all of that actually uh, is is the reality of our lives in uh, the consumer economy. Worse than that, and here is where it gets really perverse, it turns out that novelty plays a slightly seductive role in consumer psychology. In other words, we, human beings, us here, all of us have something of an appetite for novelty there's a variety of reasons for that. Novelty signals progress to us. It gives us a sense of hope that things are getting better, uh, functioning better, signalling better, brighter and, and shinier than they were in the past, and providing a vision of a better world, if not for us, then for our children. So novelty plays into our dreams and aspirations. It's part of our psychology to some extent. and. Um, It also plays, as I've indicated here, into some slightly less sanguine dynamics like status competition, having the latest gadget, the biggest house, the fastest car, uh, the the most uh, resonant um, holiday in the sun, the latest fashion, all of that is well known now to play into uh, a sense of status competition, part of the way that we interact with each other as human beings. So here what you have, and I'll just underline this really, is that you have two interlocking dynamic systems. And they fit perfectly together. The production of novelty by firms, is, of course, has its perfect counterpart in the consumption of novelty by people. We are exactly the kinds of people, it seems, that would keep this system going and the dynamic of it now constitutes quite clearly something which we could identify as an engine of growth. And it's not just an engine of economic value. It's an economic engine that's played out through material goods and the relationship that we have with material goods as a language that plays into our sense of becoming part of society, of living in the social world, of helping to create the social world in Mary Douglas's terms and find a credible place in it. In other words, an essentially social task played out through material goods, locked into a structural system that continues to demand more and more of it. Um, Fascinating aspects of this, uh, um, one of them is just actually how important credit is to it. relation to the credit branch you can see this through this graph which is a graph of of personal debt the rise in personal debt in the UK over a 15 or so year period and you can see a sharp rise in personal debt the, the red line and a decline a quite drastic decline in household savings so what's going on here people are borrowing more money and liquidating their savings why because they're being persuaded that they should spend money they don't have on goods they don't need to create impressions that probably won't last on people they don't care about. (laughs) And worse still, don't care about them. So where do we get to that from the basic social task of participating in society? Well, that's obviously a question that we can ask ourselves, and we can clearly ask ourselves, could we do better in that social task? But for now, Um, Actually, the diagnosis, and I did warn you about this, is quite salutary. So we're locked into a kind of iron cage, as I've called it, through these two mutually reinforcing dynamics, economic structure and social logic. And economic growth is perfectly served by these dynamics. But well-being may not be, and environmental limits are quite clearly under severe threat from what's going on. And here's an interesting fact, but actually government itself is deeply conflicted here. How could that be? Why is it the government can't see this? Why can't it see that economic growth is driving us towards an ecological cliff? Well, actually, you know, if economic stability depends on economic growth, social stability certainly depends on economic stability. Isn't government actually fulfilling exactly its remit by promoting economic growth as fast as it can? Because that's what keeps the system stable, allows for social stability, and who would vote for a government that allowed for or presided over a collapse in social stability. So, in other words, you know, the lock-in that's inherent in the system itself locks government in as well and puts it in a very, very difficult place indeed. So, having established that you know, <coughs> salutary diagnosis, what's the prognosis? Well, obviously, at this point, you just say, I'm giving up. I've had enough. I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm going to leave it to some other bright, shiny faces out there, still with the idealism of utopian vision, who can go out and create a sustainable world, or at least convince themselves that they're going to. And I am going away to find a patch of land on a hillside, (laughs) above the rising sea level somewhere. I'm going to grow some vegetables, keep some chickens and goats, and I'm going to live out the rest of my days uh, in, in some sort of sense of harmony with nature. And it's a very, very tempting vision. I know lots of people tempted by it, including myself. And then you think to yourself, actually... I'd better take an AK-47 with me. (laughs) Because when the brown stuff hits the fan, things are going to get tough, and the barbarians are going to be at the gates. And the more you think through that scenario, the more actually you're drawn back into the eye of the storm and the understanding that actually that isn't going to last very long. (coughs) That rural idyll of harmony with nature is not the solution to the problems that we're facing. So as you get drawn back into the eye of the storm, you have to find a position Uh, uh, from which you can operate. Mine is this, it's a very simple slogan, another world is possible. Um, It's not my slogan, it belongs to the World Social Forum, but actually it's it's an article of faith in Prosperity Without Growth. This is it, that another world is possible. And actually, the rest, the second bit, the third bit, sorry, of Prosperity Without growth is attempting to persuade you that another world is possible. You don't have to agree with the vision that I put out. You don't have to accept its implications. You don't have to say, yes, of course the world is going to live like this. All you have to do to understand my argument is to accept that this is a different possibility, that we, there are places where we could intervene. So all I'm going to do in the last little bit is suggest what they consist of, and they have to look at economic structure, that's clear. They must look at the social logic. They may need to look at the questions of governance, and all of these things are teased out in, in the last bits of our of growth. I'll just lead you through just a couple of bits of them. Um, the, the starting point interestingly actually is to is to go right back to basics and say is our conception of prosperity the only one that we could possibly have is the prosperity as economic income and ever-rising economic income does it make sense in terms of our philosophical understandings of what it means to flourish and here, the evidence is just so strong, really, that it, just, it, it confounds me why it's so difficult to take on board. Because all of our philosophical traditions, lots of our faith traditions, the wisdom traditions, all of the sense of economic history, all of our understanding of economic psychology and social psychology tells you, actually, it isn't money, isn't just money that matters. You can think of prosperity in different ways. If you ask people, indeed, Popular surveys, what matters to them, family, friends, a community that they can trust, a good quality of their environment, the ability to participate in society, a sense that it's possible to think of their lives in meaningful ways. These are the components of prosperity. The vision that we put at the heart of Prosperity Without Growth draws a lot on these ideas and on the philosophy of, of Amartya Sen and um, who talked about capabilities for people to flourish and prosperity as being about the provision of those capabilities. If that vision is slightly tempered by the fact that prosperity, if we're to think of it in meaningful ways as a shared prosperity, has to be flourishing within ecological limits. It has to be a prosperity that we could conceive of as being available to our fellow human beings. Um, and indeed, there are some religious traditions that suggest that philosophy outside of that framing, that moral framing of shared prosperity, simply is not prosperity at all. We might not want to go that far in our Western culture, but it is clear that we can conceive of prosperity in very, very different ways. It would still, of course, have material conditions. Food, clothing, shelter is still going to matter. But what about the vast majority or the increasing majority of our material consumption that's dedicated not so much to food, clothing, and shelter as functional tasks, but to the object of social and psychological flourishing, participation in the life of society. How could we approach those tasks? And actually, here is a kind of a key. All we really need to do is to suggest that there may be other ways of approaching that task, that the task of identity and meaning and participation in life may be ill-served, in fact, by material consumption and may be much better served by other ways of participating in society. And I just have to tease out one of the elements of that because it's a very, very interesting one around the role of social goods and in particular the role of public spaces. Could public spaces, could the space between us rather than material things that we fill it with provide a means of participating better in society than the one offered by consumer culture? And here's a place that draws um, actually strength from people like Michael Sandel, who in his Reef Lecture last year talked about public sites, public space in exactly this way. He said there were sites for the cultivation of a common citizenship. Places where people from all walks of life could encounter one another and acquire enough of a sense of a shared life that we can meaningfully think of one another as citizens in a common venture. A way of connecting us to each other a way of connecting us to our past, a way of connecting us and making meaningful our sense of the future. So here you have a concept, a very, very simple concept of public space, which we had relegated as a second-class citizen, as a safety net for those who couldn't afford private affluence, is shifted into the centre of the frame as one way of creating capabilities for people to flourish in less materialistic, more meaningful ways. You may not agree with it. You don't have to agree with it. All you have to do is recognize, in fact, that there is an avenue here for a different way of approaching social and psychological flourishing, a different sense of prosperity. That's fine, that's great. That's a nice, rosy vision, make you feel all warm inside, that idea of um, social flourishing. Um, And it is absolutely essential to at least know that you have that vision in your back pocket to inform the way that you're pursuing this different prosperity. But you still have not solved the economic problems. You still have an economic structure that is tough, that is demanding, that has its own internal logic. What are you going to do about the economy? Well, the first thing to say is that's not just my question, to be perfectly honest, on the back of a massive financial crash, a recession, and no clear sense of where long-term recovery is going to come from. That is everybody's problem. Where is the new economy going to come from? Where is the next economy going to come from? So here, by way of offering into that debate, is a couple of suggestions that might just lead us towards another economy. And I've pitched it just for the sake of argument in terms of another engine of growth. If we accept that engine of growth has led to financial insecurity through the instability of the system of of, uh, of expanding credit, essentially... If we accept that it has failed to reduce inequity, if we accept that it's driving us towards an ecological cliff, but we still want economic growth, let's try and think of another engine of economic growth. And there are two candidates. Again, these aren't mine, they're out there. You can take a look at the literature in relation to them. And there are two quite strong candidates. One is the idea of a whole set of green technology markets, new technologies sets of places where we can employ a new workforce in the production of these technologies and they can deliver us back a sense of economic expansion and the other is a very interesting one is the idea that it goes back to my sense of decoupling is if it's the material goods that we're worried about why don't we just sell each other services kind of the economy so we're not selling widgets and stuff we're selling things that contribute to human flourishing, to each other's well-being. Maybe it's health, maybe it's education, maybe it's yoga teaching, maybe it's dancing, maybe it's gardening, maybe it's something that's uh, built around the renewal and renovation of buildings, uh, refurbishment of of our um, infrastructures, Maybe it's a set of services completely, in some cases, completely dematerialized. A uh, yoga teacher has a group of 20 people in a field. They all walk to get there, and they pay the yoga teacher the money for the service. Now, I'm setting that up slightly as, a, as a, an example which is clearly not necessarily a mainstream economic activity, but it is the sort of thing that people have talked about in terms of an increasingly servicized economy. And actually it has a lot going for it because those activities contribute to human flourishing, they support community, they don't have many resources, and they create economic activities. So what could possibly be wrong with it? Well, maybe not a lot, actually. Let me look at each of those things in turn. Where do they take us? Could they provide a different engine of growth? <laughs> Clean technology first leads to uh, a concept that I explore in the book called ecological investment. And ecological investment essentially is recognising that, yes, we do need these targets we need these low carbon technologies we need we need resource productivity we need renewable energy we need energy efficiency we need investment in different sets of infrastructures and technologies and we also need to invest in ecological assets we have to protect the ecological assets that are essential to growth but and this is the but this set of investment targets doesn't work the same way as I showed you in that circle of. It doesn't have the same short return high payback characteristics so favoured by financial markets. Sometimes there's good financial returns, sometimes the paybacks are much longer. Sometimes it's ecological and social returns we're looking at, not financial returns. So in other words this is a fantastic set of targets, it's absolutely what we should be doing but it doesn't return us to growth. Productivity in the long term, in the financial way, in the way conventionally measured is likely to take a hit It's a fantastic idea, it's very, very good. We need to rethink financial markets to get there. We need to rethink the balance and the role of the public sector in relation to the private sector. We need to rethink questions of ownership and the distribution of assets from these investments. But it isn't necessarily (coughs) going to give us back growth. Let's take the other one. Um, And maybe you won't be surprised to discover that actually my message here is the same. This is a fantastic idea dematerialised, servicised activities could be the basis for a different kind of economy. resource flight, service-based, They contribute real uh, capabilities to flourishing, They provide people with jobs, support communities. Do they give us back growth? This is uh, one of the really interesting questions. It's a question on which you can ask the data. You can say where do these kinds of things exist and how well did they perform in terms of growth over the last 20 years, let's say. Here's the data. This comes from an EU CLEMS project and it looks at productivity growth over the last 20 years or so. If this kind of Cinderella sector of service-sized activities exists in the data, it exists somewhere here in something called the personal and social services sector. And just take a look at the productivity of that sector over the last 20 years. These are the figures. So far from contributing growth, there's little bits of productivity gain in some places on the whole actually this sector has pulled down growth potential, it's pulled down productivity and actually there's a very good reason for that because actually a lot of the value in these servicised activities is the contribution of what? Of human labour. So does it make sense to continually chase labour out of a sector in which it provides the value of the services? Absolutely not. Actually, we should be lauding this sector. It's providing people with jobs. It's creating the opportunities for people to flourish. It's supporting the communities that we have. But it isn't necessarily going to give us back growth. Does it matter? Only to those for whom the growth is the underlying aim, the be-all and end-all of the economic engine. So it's another engine of the economy, but it's not necessarily an engine of growth. That shouldn't worry us, is my argument. These are fantastic avenues for renovating, renewing our economy, for having a completely different vision, for having an objective that matters and that makes sense. Employment, meaningful participation in society, the ability to support communities, the ability for people to flourish and to do that in materially light ways. And again, I would sort of end that sort of, that's all I'm going to show you of the specific um, um, arguments or avenues for change, Um, But I would end by saying in the same way that I don't necessarily need you to believe that this is the only way forward, or the right way forward, or the best way forward. All I need you to believe is that it's different, it's possible, and it could work. So, another world is possible. What does it look like? Here's a different sort of economics. It looks something like this. Ecological enterprise provides capabilities for people to flourish, and at the same time offers them the ability to participate in that enterprise and the outcome is improved, flourishing, but none of that sits in this new economics outside the very, very important finite constraints of the planet, where ecosystem services, the services from ecological assets, are the vital component in keeping us going. And estimates of the values of those services are now uh, quite commonplace actually, and on the whole they tell us that the value of those services both to enterprise and to people, exceeds the conventional financial flows through the monetarised economy. Um, What's less recognised but absolutely critical is that somewhere we are going to be called on to return that favour. We're going to need a concept of ecological investment back into those services to protect, to enhance, to maintain our ecological assets and to increase our ecological productivity. This, I would argue, very grandly rather, perhaps, is the... Beginnings of an economics for a finite planet. Now, obviously, I started out by saying that um, this came from the Sustainable Development Commission the Sustainable Development Commission reports here. <laughs> it's not good enough to have fine visions. So it's not good enough to have uh, even critical arguments. Actually, we're asked on a continual basis, what do we do on Monday? And, um, and that's always a difficult question to answer. But actually, it's possible to distill what you do, where the, where the change has to happen in, in, in very simple ways. Is my start at three. Uh, establish the limits, make sense of limits, establish them and integrate them into the way that our understanding of the economy works. Um, Fix the economics, for goodness sake, because they're already broke and they haven't worked even in their own terms. They are ecologically illiterate and they're not capable of delivering a dynamic system that will remain within those ecological limits. And then finally, of course, change the social logic. And what could be simpler than that? (laughs) I mean, it isn't, of course, um, and we did a lot more um, in the report and in the book. There's lots more on specific policy avenues. These, interestingly, the way that we approached these was to embed them in precedent, to say all of these things actually have some precedent. Why not let's have a strategy which makes these, puts these as a priority, understands their importance in developing uh, a sustainable economy? And that is something that you can start, just on Monday, actually, but even sooner, Thursday afternoon. So, just leave you with this wonderful quote from President Sarkozy, and he very kindly said this when he launched the Sarkozy Commission report, uh, just in time for me to put it on the inside cover of the jacket uh, for the book. Uh, it was very kind of him. And he said, The crisis doesn't only make us free to imagine other models, another future, another world, it obliges us to do so. Taking aside just for the moment, the question of what Carla Bruni thought about him imagining other models. <laughs> the important point, the serious point is that his call really, his recognition is that actually we have a responsibility here, this is not a luxury it's not something to mess around with in academic spare time, it is a responsibility to come up with something better than the system that we've had and to maintain our faith and indeed the reality of the idea that another world is possible thank you very much
0: Well, thank you very, very much, Tim, for what I thought was a very thought-provoking, poignant, and healthily provocative um, um, talk this evening. Um, We've now got time for questions. We've got about 25 minutes for questions now. I have a couple of requests to you about the questions. Um, If you could actually ask questions rather than engage in monologues, that would be much appreciated. Um, so we have maximise the time for the collective good, and also if you could wait till a microphone reaches you, and perhaps identify yourself and any, any affiliations you have. I think that would be useful as well. So, who wants to go first? I saw the, the hand up here. So,
2: gentlemen, thank you, Professor Jackson, a, a very stimulating and salutary talk, but I fear that there is an elephant in the room standing on the podium that you haven't looked at and haven't addressed. And that is the, the elephant of continual population increase. And I fear that any attempts to handle the problems that you have so lucidly drawn attention to that doesn't face equally lucidly that problem is utopian and doomed to failure.
1: Um, that was the question, right? <laughs> um, um, you're absolutely right, to draw attention to it, and there is some discussion of it in the book. I mean, it, was, it is a, a fiercely contested subject and, and something actually on which the Sustainable Development Commission itself has, has a sort of slightly uneasy history because Jonathan Porritt, for example, is one of those people who has spoken out quite strongly on the question of population and growth and its importance, and that absolutely has to be Recognised. Actually, there are some interesting features of it there. When you look at the data over the last 50 years, you discover that, uh, for example, in relation to carbon, you discover that over about a 50-year period, population growth and affluence growth have both contributed about equally to the increase in impact. If you narrow your time horizon to the last 15 to 20 years, you discover that affluence begins to outweigh population as the important factor in determining uh, uh, increases in impact, and actually, if you look at projections of population going forwards, you find that shifts further so in other words that so the affluence factor i 'm not at all denying the importance of the population factor as a scaling factor, but the affluence factor the income per capita factor becomes increasingly important as um, as we go forward. So that's the justification for talking about it. I don't at all deny that the population issue is important. The other sort of um, slight factor that favours my concentration on affluence for the purposes of this argument is that actually if what we're doing is making room for growth, uh, one of the things that we know happens with income growth in developing countries is that the Uh, fertility rates declines, particularly through the education of women, and that in itself will address uh, or at least begin to slow down population growth in those places. So there is an argument still, I think, that, that making room for growth is a critical thing to look at, because affluence has been and is becoming the dominant factor, and because the idea of Making room for growth in those countries where population growth is highest uh, will have the effect of, or is likely to have the effect of slowing down population growth. So that's the only response I have at the moment, but I would actually accept that what needs to happen and hasn't yet happened and is very difficult to get happening. I read something in the Times or for the Times um, a week or so ago on this issue and it elicited the most torrid response of online comment that suggests that this is still an incredibly difficult issue to tackle. And what needs to happen quite clearly is that we find a framework to make that conversation constructive and to give it the attention that, as you pointed out, is due.
0: Um, Can I take the lady in the white top up there? Thank you very much. No. Thank you very much. Um, can you Ritik, LSE. My question is, you talked about the current model and the ecological enterprise, so the question is, how do we actually get from the current model to the ecological enterprise idea in terms of what policies and actors would you regard as most relevant? And the second part of the question would be, what capabilities where are the actual capabilities to overcome the lock-in into the system, whether in the industrialized countries or in the developing countries who haven't so deeply already got locked into the current model of development?
1: Yeah, Um, both really interesting question. I mean, there's a lot more than I had time to go into in relation to the policies. Um, And, and, you know, that whole list that I flicked over very quickly is a sort of starter for 10 or starter for 12, actually, um, in relation to specific things. And they revolve around what? They revolve around our ecological literacy and economics, they revolve around our national accounting systems, they revolve around our ability and our targeting of investment into uh, low carbon transition and ecological protection, they revolve around uh, a set of actions that look at the social logic and understand the dynamics of that, the perverse incentives towards consumerism have to be dismantled, systematically we need to understand those, but we also have to offer people Uh, the potential to flourish to participate in society in less materialistic ways and you can you can go through that as a set of strategic aims and say these things all make sense and you can also say actually these are not things that are particularly new they need to be placed in a strategic uh, context and and pursued with some political will and that brings me on I suppose to your question about actors Um, and and that is a tough one Um, to, to answer your final point about is it in the developing countries or is it in the developed nations and prosperity without growth was a piece of work specifically aimed at a developed country audience and my i think my belief is that, that actually we have a responsibility in the developed nations to come up with something better and we also have a responsibility not necessarily to impose it on the developing nations um, but at the same time of course conversations in developing nations over a different models <coughs> of economic development are incredibly Um, important as well. Um, But who are the actors was your question. Um, We as a commission have an audience of policy makers and policy makers do and the government, government governance in general has a key role to play here but it's also clear that that doesn't exhaust where action has to take place. Um, and actually, there's a lot of quite exciting stuff that actually happens at grassroots community level, where people are exploring different models of enterprise, different models of investment, different savings models, exploring the community, locking community interest into the enterprise model, looking at uh, regeneration at the local level. The work that Anne is Anne Power has been doing um, in relation to how cities actually and neighbourhoods can renovate and reinvent themselves in the faces of these kinds of crisis and all of that happening at a grassroots level that's enormously exciting but nonetheless requires support in the form of (coughs) resources structures the right set of institutions at government level so those things have to happen and of course at the same time you need businesses to be operating a different way you do need businesses to be understanding their role as enterprise within the bounds of ecological limits. So those, all of those actors have to be engaged. The one thing, and I was quite struck by this when I was writing Prosperity Without Grace, is it does seem to me, um, and this is salutary given the context that we might be going into, in a new government, is it's very difficult to get away from the need for some form of governance, for some sense of the social contract, for some ability to provide the right structures and to change and unpick the perverse incentives so that that to me and and as our primary audience um that's reinforced puts some responsibility at least on government
0: i take the gentleman uh, near the back
2: Uh, thank you uh, my name 's Mark Rasmussen I'm, As I understand it you 're the existing status quo model involving firms and households right in that it seems I think you said that the engine for, of economic growth was novelty, status, et etc. What about a um, thing i, I 've come to wonder if there 's another elephant in the room, which is um, our monetary system, basically our interest-demanding um, debt-based money, which yeah. many people, uh, I don't know, I'm not an expert, say is actually mostly private banks. So you, yeah. the, you you go for a loan, they don't go to the vault and check it, they just write a credit, yeah. and that demands interest. And unless you have this super-duper uh, technological improvement, that's going to demand the in- payment of the interest is going to demand real growth yeah. and real resource depletion and as we've seen with the credit crunch and with increased income disparities it can lead to a lot of social disruption too. So what about that as a possible um, engine, an inexorable engine of of growth.
1: Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, two, two really important things there. One is monetary expansion itself, and monetary expansion is an interesting phenomenon in its own right. It's, uh, part, it's in Chapter 2 in the book, that discussion of why that occurred, that l- increasing liquidity leading to instability of, of, of credit mechanisms ultimately, but aimed at doing what? Aimed at stimulating uh, exactly that kind of expansion in the economy. And, and underlying that, behind that, of course, the point that you've raised about... Uh, uh, interest on the loan, or in other words about profit and about profit maximisation, maximising the returns on investment. And clearly that is something that is absolutely key, particularly in the economic structure bit at the top. That's why firms invest, not for the sake of novelty itself, but in the expectation that through novelty they will maximise returns on the investment. So the role of that is absolutely uh, key, and, and you're right to draw attention to it. And there, you know, the issue in the form of that is is partly in being able to understand and contain the almost unbridled pursuits of uh high returns on risky investments where the risk is underwritten actually by the taxpayer ultimately and by uh, the public sector and create models of both investment and enterprise that take a longer term view that accept lower rates of return that don't pursue maximization in financial terms themselves but lock in the returns on investments in ways that promote social uh, goals and and protect ecological assets and that is absolutely key didn't have time to draw it out but it's absolutely key to that concept of ecological enterprise that i was drawing attention to
0: um, can I take the gentleman here in the middle
3: thank you very much uh, tim um it all this seems so obvious to so many of us that it always strikes me as um, Worrying that our political um, masters, that's who they are, don't accept it. What do they say to you, Tim, when you go and put this to them? What is their response? What's their intellectual argument which rebuts this?
1: Uh, well, it's a really interesting uh, set of responses that I could give you to that. The first thing they said to me, which was a Friday evening on the night... Um, Of the weekend the Friday of the weekend before the launch on the Monday of the report and I was walking home it's quite late at night and I received a phone call from an unnamed official in an unnamed department who told me that number 10 in an unnamed street in London had gone ballistic Um, and um, (laughs) so the first thing they said to me was uh, something in the in the in the spectrum of wrath Um, and 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 then that, the, the next thing that they said to me really, although not necessarily directly, is how can we make this go away? You know, how can we make this report go away? How can uh, we rid ourselves um, of, of an advisory report from a body, particularly when they launched the report, and I admit this was unfortunate, in the week in which the Prime Minister had invited the G20 leaders to London to talk about restarting, kick-starting growth. So it, I can see we didn't time things perfectly. Um, but at the same time, um, beyond that, beyond that sort of vis- immediate visceral response, and indeed the, the attempt to anathematise it, what's really interesting is a range of responses. Some of them have been—I um, mean, I have been invited in all sorts of quite surprising places now, including Treasury, um, Defra, DEC, the D- Department for International Development. I spent a, a half-afternoon seminar with the Scottish Government. And the conversations that are beginning to happen there now are much more engaged and much more intelligent. And, 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 and to me, a sort of source of optimism, because actually that wasn't possible, even when we announced that we were going to do this. There was a, someone from Treasury stood up in the audience and said, now I see what sustainability is all about. It's about going back to live in caves. That's what you're talking about, <laughs> isn't it? And all we had done was say, we were going to question the relationship between growth and sustainability so it's a very very visceral response and some of but but that has has changed I mean there's a much more intelligent conversation possible some people some politicians in Austria there is a project partly stimulated by our work called growth in transition that is owned by the government Um, and so there's a sense an increasing sense the Sarkozy Commission points the same thing that people are beginning to question that model but still you get responses Uh, which I wouldn't exactly describe as intellectual, I think. One of my favourite ones was going to Treasury and spending an hour talking with a special adviser about the messages in the report. And at the end of it he said to me, so when we go to uh, the G8 meetings, how are we going to hold up our heads if our GDP is not at position five or six in the list of GDP across nations? which to me was just extraordinary level of non-intellectual engagement, but points again to something that is quite visceral. It is, you know, uh, we need to compete with the big boys and how are we going to show that we can do this if we're not performing against the indicators? And one obvious response to that, which does, again, attract increasing attention, is actually this is the wrong performance indicator. This GDP is the wrong one. Come up with something better, and you can allow those guys to go and hold up their heads perhaps in a different uh, uh, context, maybe it's not G8 anymore. So it's a range of things, really. Um, I'm encouraged by the extent to which that conversation has been possible, uh, but not wildly optimist, over-optimistic that there's still some really you know, underlying visceral responses which are hard to offset. The
0: gentleman there with the VNet jumper, yeah. Um. Hello, and thank
4: you very much for this wonderful book. Uh, it's really a book about ecology, even if we talk about the economics most of the time. And there is at the moment a big buzz in the media and the politics about climate change, and as you've shown in the first slide, it's only one part of the issue and maybe not the most uh, critical one. So do you think this narrow focus that we have at the moment on climate change is... Uh, completely welcome because it's at least a move in the right direction? Or could it have a perver- perverse effect of maybe steering away the energies um, away from a more global perspective like the one you have in the book? So yeah. could I have your opinion
2: on that?
1: Uh, it's a very good question. I, I actually think that it's, it's potentially perverse. The, the, the um, attention that we have focused on climate change is clearly not the only sustainable, sustainability issue of importance. Um, But I think when any any of you here, when when Jonathan Poirot was here a couple of weeks ago and he showed a slide right at the end, which was a kind of list of reasons that you might do some of the things that you need to do to uh, mitigate climate change. And um, with a little caption, that said something like, uh, but what if it turns out that climate change isn't happening? But you've solved um, you know, questions of biodiversity, you've solved issues of land, you've solved issues around water scarcity, you've solved energy security problems and you've made people's lives better. Actually there's lots of reasons for doing those things anyway. And, and the difficult thing, the dangerous thing, particularly the situation that we find ourselves in at the moment with the, the climate gate Issues, the, the, the increasing climate scepticism as a result of, of things that have happened um, um, in various places, actually in the IPCC, in, in UEA and so on and so forth, is that we will lose a focus on a sensible idea about sustainability because we lose the public uh, acceptance of the idea that climate is important. It's going to be really interesting, I mean, particularly interesting since we do actually have climate legislation that has to be played out, at least through, one suspects, the next term of government. And and so actions will have to begin to be put in place that will mitigate carbon emissions. Um, And I think the interesting thing about that is how that will play politically. Will people actually begin to resist on the basis of this new climate scepticism? Will the government be able to recast the importance of those policies in broader terms? Um, and indeed, what happens when those policies confront the structural issues that seem to be locking governments still into the existing model? So, really interesting question, without any clear answers. But we clearly stand, and we do stand at this point, I think, in quite potentially quite frightening place. Uh,
0: Gentlemen, here at the front.
4: Uh, Professor Jackson. I'd like to ask uh, another question about elephants. Um, there's a gentleman mm. earlier who talked about um, have, whether you've engaged with government. Um, my question is. How, sorry, how? Uh, there's a gentleman earlier who asked about whether you engage with government. Oh, yes. My okay. question is a, a follow on from that. Um, so it, it seems to me governments aren't awful as, as good as maybe they should be at acknowledging and responding to um, elephants in the room that have long term consequences or mainly long-term consequences, such as peak oil, climate change, economies that are, are fueled on in increasing debt. And my question is how you think we can go about changing this and helping them to think outside of the status quo, for example, as, as Sarkozy's government has started to do. And if I could, a, a cheeky follow-on question, which uh, should be quick to answer, is, is uh, it's just how you stay optimistic, given the, the magnitude and number of challenges
1: that we face. Uh, don't always. Actually, it depends which day you catch me on. Say, so, um, um, actually, for me, optimism is, is, is an act of will. Really, um, there is no point in pessimism. It's just no. I mean, it's very tempting, but there isn't a lot of point in it. Um, and, and actually, there's good psychological evidence to suggest that optimism is a better psychological strategy for achieving things than pessimism is. Um, <laughs> so, so I mean. You know, I have bad days along with everyone else, but, but I do think that, that that sort of, you know, op- optimism as well is incredibly important. How do you, how do you persuade um, policymakers? I mean, one of the ways that I think the Prosperity Without Grace tried to do that, and, and to some extent it's worked, at least in engaging them in the debate, is to take quite a forgiving position. Um, so my position, in which, which recognises that governments themselves are locked in and that they have a legitimate remit at this point in time in the pursuit of growth, um, is, is a sort of forgiving one. It says, actually, you're doing the best you can in the circumstances in which economic stability depends on growth. And so you find yourself conflicted because your growth objective conflicts with your environmental sustainability objectives, but that's because of the nature of the system. And what that does, or at least what that has the potential to do, is to create a sort of space where instead of demonizing government for bad policy, which is very tempting clearly at times, is recogniz- recognizing that progress has been made, for, for instance, in a groundbreaking climate legislation, uh, but accepting the limitations on the way the governments operate at the moment. So that's one thing is a sort of forgiving space. And the other thing actually is being able to offer them some routes that would allow them to take action. And, and really important there is that they can take action without scaring the horses. And here is one of those places where actually choosing the title that we chose, although it's done masses of work for us, Prosperity Without Growth, I would have to accept is maybe not the best thing to have done, because it's still politically and in media terms very, very difficult for government to even be seen to be questioning growth in any way whatsoever. So in order to um, mobilise, to galvanise, policy change and political uh, recognition of the issues you actually have to find a language um, in which they can talk about it you have to find a set of issues through which they can engage in it in a safe way and you have to offer them actually an understanding that they're in a difficult position to to create change And, and I don't know that those things are going to be successful but that's the kind of strategy in a sense that we've tried to engage in with policy.
0: Um, The gentleman there uh, with his hand up with the, uh, I'm a bit colorblind unfortunately, I'm not very good at this. Um, Yes, uh, over there.
4: Hi, uh, Tom Vladek, I'm a student here at LSE. I would just like you to elaborate a little bit more on what you mean when you say that wealthy countries should make room for poor countries to grow, especially when A lot of poor countries' growth is contingent on trade with wealthier countries.
1: Um, That system dynamic is changing. I mean, it is a a very important point that the fact that we live in a globalized economy in which um, some of the growth in the industrializing nations in particular, certainly over the last historical period, has been contingent on consumption growth in the developed nations. Um, the room that needs to be created, though, is ecological space um, because there isn't, and it is quite clear, when you look at um, the, life, the, the material implications of, of Western lifestyles extrapolated to 9 billion people, it just does not compute. So our pursuit of this lifestyle um, and with this material intensity relies really on the assumption that we're borrowing ecological space both from other people on the planet who Living on in dire poverty, and future generations who will not have the access to these possibilities. So that material space seems to be, um, you know, that that the, the need to create that material room seems to me to be uh, uncontestable. The implications in terms of the global economy and the interlinked nature that you've you've made clear needs um, at least some consideration but increasingly actually and particularly on the back of the recession which hit the advanced nations hardest actually what's happening is the industri- industrializing nations becoming much stronger trading partners with each other and the diminished importance of the western nations as the trading partners that will create the growth that you need in the industrializing nations so there are dynamics there that are already shifted and yet, still, your point, you know, is, is salient. Your point is that we do have a globally interconnected economy and we need mechanisms that will actually allow for development within the ecological space that's available for those poorest nations. And there, actually, there's a very, very strong argument for um, not exactly technology transfer, but for resource transfer mechanisms that, that would actually allow for investment in developing countries and actually resourced through the surpluses created in the advanced nations. And again, what that would do is it would take a hit, we would take a hit on consumption growth in the developed nations and actually transfer the ability to invest in ecological development in the developing nations through those kinds of mechanisms. And that, I mean, you know, one example of that is the the fund, the global fund talked about in the Copenhagen agreement, one of the only things that came out of the Copenhagen agreement. But you can also look at a variety of other transfer mechanisms, support mechanisms uh, that would create that ability.
0: Uh, there's a gentleman over here had a question. Uh, thank you. <coughs> yes, um, this, uh, there is another uh, um, element Psychological uh, uh, root of the uh, g- economic growth, and that is probably competition. Perverse it may be, but that is also a reality of of human existence. Um, how do you what you call inculcate? How do you uh, bring up bring that element in your uh, new model? Uh, maybe yeah. you don't agree that per- that competition is uh, is what you call an issue. But uh, if it is, if you think if you agree with it, how will you bring it? How will you what you call bring that?
1: If yeah I think I understand the question, so you 're saying that actually uh, competition and, and the, the uh, pursuit of, of, of uh, individual self interest, if you like, is a part is the human nature and that 's driving what 's going on. Is that your question
2: okay.
1: Yeah, okay, so I mean it 's a very good point. Um, it, but this is, this is where, I mean, this is where when you look at that structural lock-in, you ask yourself, what can I change here? What is, what is actually an immutable feature of this system and what is not? And a very common response, particularly from economists, actually, is to say an immutable feature of the system is that we're all self-interested, self-motivated people who are pursuing, through competitive strategies, our own advantage, and, according to Adam Smith, by extension, that is the best possible outcome for society. That is actually the ideology at the heart of... The uh, mainstream economic model Um, it's challenged in all sorts of ways it's challenged actually even by economists in in various ways who talk about the importance of institution the importance of collaboration the cooperative models of of capitalism but it's also challenged interestingly by human psychology to come to your point about psychology Um, and the 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 model that I use to tease this out um, is actually due to a social psychologist called Shalom Schwartz and Shalom Schwartz I think, has done a fantastic thing. He's got a model, essentially, of, of human values, and what he's suggested is that the idea that we are all self-interested people is just not borne out by uh, the empirical evidence. It's not borne out either by a heuristic understanding of where we came from. So he's got a model which says, actually, the human psyche is a balance, a tension between self-interest, self-serving behaviors and values, and other <laughs> regarding altruistic. Social behaviors. There's a clear tension there. And he says quite nicely that actually that's an evolutionary adaptation because self interest helps to, uh, in the individual survival, but individual survival in the kind of species that we are would have been totally ineffective without the formation of social groups. And that's why the social altruistic element exists in the human psyche, so we have that tension, but it is a tension in the human psyche between self-serving and other-serving behaviours. And then he also points, this is even more interesting in a way in terms of my thesis, to a tension between novelty-seeking behaviours entrepreneurial innovation seeking behaviors and conservatism tradition and again he Mm -hmm. argues this has an evolutionary uh, uh, rationale because novelty seeking is essential for adaptation in changing climates and changing situations but conservation and tradition is essential in maintaining the stability that you need to reproduce and protect your children while they're still vulnerable. So what he's saying is the tension between self and other, the tension between novelty and tradition, and actually this is a quite powerful place to be for two reasons. The first is it says, the model of us as materialistic, novelty-seeking, selfish people is just wrong. It doesn't stack up. And the second point is to ask the question, why then, have we favoured and incentivised exactly those behaviours in our institutions and what might happen if we started incentivising the other kinds of behaviours. So there's there uh, two very strong lessons. This is not a decent model of what it means to be human and actually the way, the kind of people that we end up getting is heavily dependent on what we incentivise and what we favour in human behaviour. So by changing, by shifting social institutions (coughs) is my argument, actually we can produce a society in which we have a much more rounded view and a much more rounded set of human behaviours.
0: OK, we've got time for one more question. The first hand I saw was the gentleman in the... I think it's a blue top up there. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Shall I speak we'll in a high voice? It's
0: the hands I see going up first. Yeah,
3: um, I've I've got to take uh, Sorry OK,
0: we'll take a, a lady behind. I'll take some more.
3: I yeah. Is that two questions or...? Pardon? Is that going to be two questions or not? Uh, yeah, we'll take two questions. Okay, thank you. Christopher Hill of Line Delta Architects. Um, as an architect, you touched upon uh, an interesting point about social space and the quality of public space. And many of the things that you ascribe to uh, having good quality public space um, seem to fit a modernist critique quite neatly. And that sort of gave me cause for concern to, to a certain degree because we know that some of those things just didn't happen when we tried that. Uh, at other periods, could you please give me some indication, or give us some indication, of what you see as being quality public space in the context of what you said?
1: Just, um, just f- to fill me in, because, uh, fill in my ignorance in a sense. Just tell me th- how that modernist critique played out.
3: Yeah, what we perceived as being quality public spaces um, turned out not to be quality or perhaps yeah. our criteria for quality changed um, and, yeah. and that's, that's something that's evolved a number of times I think historically so what you know we, if you're describing a quality space now will that truly be a quality space in say 25 years time or something
1: yeah uh, that's, that's really interesting and, and to be honest I don't entirely know the answer I mean I suppose the characteristics that I'm pointing to are a number of things really one is <laughs> Um, spaces which reinforce rather than undermine uh, social goods and the sense of social goods as being meaningful. Spaces that represent um, a better connectivity between ourselves as people and our natural environment so green spaces, public spaces and spaces which represent better the relationship between, the relationship of ourselves in the historical context and in context to each other so spaces that Um, accept and to some extent protect uh, tradition and a sense of continuity um, in society spaces that protect and accept uh, an integrated relationship with nature spaces that protect and accept um, our role as social beings and the importance (laughs) of social goods as a part of that relationship now you know I mean I can't answer the question if you put those principles back into the heart of the way that space is designed exactly how that would play out i mean history is full of you know good design intentions that haven't played out in the way they're supposed to but i suspect that if there are principles that have gone missing then there's something along those lines
2: thank you Uh, it seems like your project would require a coordinated action at the international level which has been very difficult so far so I'm just wondering if you have any ideas how to um, foster that
1: Yeah, um, I mean what is clear from, if you look at the things that you need to do is that you can do some of them unilaterally you, you can in fact create societies that are more resilient in in the face of, of you know, almost future proofing your societies um, in ways that Uh, protect community, uh, ensure resource um, security, um, allow for uh, the support of um, vulnerable communities and vulnerable parts of the workforce um, in the face of market shocks and actually when you look across nations you find very very different approaches from what are called the liberalised market economists, which is basically the Anglo centric economists who say the market is how to do it, we're not going to think too much in terms of, of social safety net, we're not going to think too much, we're going to think more about competition and collaboration, and we're going to create these kinds of societies. The UK has done it over 20 years quite deliberately, um, prides itself as being this kind of economy, and prides this model of economic activity as the best one to pursue. Long term growth, but you also have other models of capitalism, other models of, of economy, which are very, very different, which um, much more around um, uh, the protection and building of social security, much more around the relationships of cooperation between <coughs> firms and people, and actually interesting evidence through the recession that those kinds of economies were more resilient to the shocks in relation to employment. And then you have uh, even more extreme models, you go out to Scandinavia, you have a kind of Scandinavian model of of, uh, uh, social democracy, you have a Latin American model which is even more along the lines of protecting uh, the resilience of communities and that's why in a sense when you look at those flourishing and livelihood outcomes you find that the Latin American economies are the ones with actually very low incomes but quite high flourishing outcomes and you have to accept well, you, at least one of the explanations for that is it's around social organisation. So the idea that you can't do it unilaterally doesn't quite stack up. There are some things that you can do unilaterally, but you're absolutely right to say that you also need, um, for this to play out in any meaningful way, in any global way, you need uh, some sense of, of international coordinated action. And that, as you rightly say, has been very, very difficult to achieve. Um, Nonetheless, what is absolutely clear is, in fact, that the existing system that we have, the, the model that we have, is the product of a quite deliberate, coordinated international action at a specific point in time, largely just after the Second World War, largely through what's called the Washington Consensus and the Bretton Woods Agreement, and largely structuring an economic system which actually has dominated until the crash and the recession, and is now in crisis. So my suggestion is actually there's not only is it possible to structure those institutions, but the one that we have at the moment being in crisis presents us with a window of opportunity to create different kinds of initiatives, and in some sense that's exactly what Sarkozy and the OECD and the beyond GDP um, thing that's being led by the OECD and the European Union and those kinds of initiatives are attempts to create a different global consensus around the structure of the economy and they're incredibly important. I would like to see, and I don't see why we haven't got this, I would like to see you know, particularly UK leadership in that international context around exactly that idea of creating a new consensus. Um, if we can see it in, in, in France, if we can see it in, um, in Scandinavia, if we can see it in certain Latin American economies then there is no reason why we couldn't see that leadership here.
0: Okay, we've reached um, almost 8 o'clock now, so it's the, uh, it's the end of the time for this allotted slot. Before I um, thank Professor Jackson for what I think you agree was a fascinating and very, very provocative talk, I've got a few notices. First, I'd like to announce the next um, sustainability in practice um, s- session, which will be on the 4th of March at 630 And that will be with Tony Jupiter talking about education for sustainable development. Um, And also, after this event, there will be a book signing outside here um, where Professor Jackson will be able to sign his book. And you'll be able to to purchase it for £12.99. Sure, there's a reduction, isn't it? No, that's the figure out have here unfortunately so you can so if you could um, please let us uh, Professor Jackson leave the room so we can actually get out there afterwards that'd be very much appreciated so if you can join me in thanking Professor Jackson very much for his talk to you